Hi, my name is Dr. Mark Alandari, and I'm an infectious diseases specialist in New Orleans. Hi, my name is Hope Hickerson, and I'm a health education specialist and reporter. This is the Noise Filter Podcast, where an infectious diseases physician... That's me, and a health education expert... That's me. Talk about what you need to know to keep yourself and your loved ones healthy. For more information about Noise Filter, your public health podcast, and to watch and share our incredible informative animations, please visit us at noisefiltershow.com. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to us. So let's get started. Our brains generate fever. When we get sick with an infection, our brains raise our body temperature, giving us fever. Over the years, scientists have been trying to find which specific parts of our brain cause fever. Knowing how fever is caused is important because raising body temperature and appetite loss are okay in moderation, but can become harmful if not tended too quickly or if they continue to rise past typical highs. And to access this, researchers performed an experiment on mice hoping to zero in on the section of the brain which contains the fever-generating neurons. They started by activating 12 different areas of the brain, one at a time, until they noticed that about a 1,000 neurons clustered together in one area that seemed to be the fever-inducing culprits. These neurons are located in a very small part of the brain, and the scientists suspected they could cause both increased warmth as well as activate circuits to decrease body temperature. To test these neurons, the scientists began recording brain waves from sample mice, but used a special molecule to inactivate the region they had identified, then injected the mice with bacteria, which would result in a fever response. The bacteria set off an alarm that sent signals traveling across the entire mouse's body. However, with the inhibiting molecule being present in the mouse's brain, the neurons remaining inactive, the mouse's body temperature remained normal. Further verify their conclusions, the scientists activated the neurons in the mouse without the presence of the molecule this time. The mouse body temperature increased. They found that these neurons didn't just cause fever, but they were the cause of the sick behaviors. Once the neurons were activated, the mice saw warmer areas, ate less food, and exhibited other symptoms of mice sick with flu-like illness, even though in reality, they remained healthy. This study provided incredibly useful information for scientists and healthcare professionals, as well as for anyone suffering from an infection-induced fever. First, it proved conclusively that a fever doesn't come from the bacteria or virus itself, but is part of the brain's and immune system's own efforts to fight it off. These discoveries may lead to a future where we are able to avoid fevers by using other mechanisms to activate the immune system to fight illness, while leaving the fever-inducing area of the brain suppressed. After concluding their research, the scientists suspect that there must be other neurons in the body that detect foreign molecules entering the body and send signals to different parts of the immune system, either activating it or suppressing it. The researchers plan to continue their studies on how these signals influence the experience of being sick and the behavioral changes we experience. I don't physicians follow their own guidelines. 
A new study based on over a decade of population-wide data from Sweden offers evidence about why doctors and their families may ignore medical advice. <gasps> compared, to, compared to the general population, doctors and their families adhere to general medication guidelines much less. In fact, doing so only 54% of the time. So by examining prescription drug purchases, hospital visits, and diagnosis, the researchers could determine whether doctors were adhering to medication guidelines. A total of six guidelines were devoted to antibiotics, 20 to medication used by the elderly, 20 to medication associated with a particular diagnosis, and 17 to prescription drug use during pregnancy. After digging through all that data, it was evident that doctors and their close relatives tend to adhere to medical guidelines less, almost across the board. But why is this so? According to the researchers, doctors possess better knowledge of prescription drug guidelines, both the benefits and dangers, and they also have more intimate knowledge of their own health and that of family members than they have of the average patient who may only interact with them for five minutes per visit a couple times a year. They use their additional knowledge to create care regimens for themselves and their family members that are more fine-tuned and more likely to promote their personal health than a public health as a whole. So I actually agree 100% with that paragraph that I just 100% correct. There's, there's other reasons that in, in the U.S. that are more relevant, but I'll explain that in a second. Right. So basically, not, it, one size does not fit all, right? Well, that's it's, that's a great way, if you're going to summarize, that's a great way to summarize it. One size does not fit all, but at least here in the U.S., we have these very rigid guidelines that we're supposed to follow. And if something untoward happens to somebody, if you haven't followed the guideline or at least, you know, kind of explained why you're stepping away from guideline with the patient's consent and they something bad happens, you can be sued. So malpra fear of malpractice is a huge part of that. But I'm sure that this is, you know, in other countries where the fear of malpractice doesn't exist. I mean, it's a major angst, anxiety driver yeah. here in the U.S. for physicians. And I think that's another reason as physicians just understand things and they realize, oh, I don't, we, you know, this is not necessarily a guideline I have to follow mm -hmm. whole heart, you know, for my family, you mm -hmm. know. Yeah. But Makes for another family, they will definitely do that, though, because, right. again, for their patients. Yeah. So this brings up a good point that is often overlooked, namely the challenge that almost all doctors face when weighing the desires of an individual patient, what is best for them, and what treatment might be best for public health generally. Let's imagine, for instance, that in terms of public health, it might be better to offer a prescription for a narrow-spectrum antibiotic, but a patient might only want to get rid of their infection as soon as possible and therefore request a wide-spectrum antibiotic. In cases like this, doctors can end up between a rock and a hard place, knowing there's a contradiction between what's good for society versus what their patient desires. This study shows that in these cases, doctors must often hover between the two options, although most often siding with their patients rather than public health guidelines. The results of the study suggest that experts understand the right course of action for themselves in a way that is more nuanced and occasionally different from what the guidelines suggest. It also shows that doctors tend to treat themselves and their families with what they perceive to be the best course of action is, even if this occasionally runs counter to guidelines or public health recommendations. This is exactly what I was saying a moment ago. Mm -hmm. Providing patients with more transparency could be a good first step, such as making guidelines more explicit about public and private trade-offs. And doctors might be encouraged to explain these to a patient. Well, that's also if they have the time to do so, to barely have time to see the patient as is. 100%. Yeah, there's, you know, these guidelines exist for many reasons. 
reasons. You know, one is that you have groups of physicians who are experts in something who study the data and then provide recommendations as generally as possible, mm-hmm. and maybe sometimes as specific as possible, but that doctors can lean on to see what the best course of action would be for somebody. Mm-hmm. But a- again, um, you know, with how quickly uh, most physicians are pushed to see patients, yeah. it, it's very, very difficult. Yeah, there's just, I mean, there's no way to explain, have enough time to explain that thoroughly, answer all questions, pros, cons, benefits, con, you know, all that stuff. So, yeah, this is, it sounds great, but uh, it's easier said than done, I think. 100%. Thanks for listening to Noise Filter, your public health podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the Noise Filter podcast. Follow us on social media and leave us a review letting us know your favorite part of the show. You can find me, Hope Hickerson, at hopehickerson.com. And you can find me at Dr. Mark Allen Derry or at the Dr. Derry. That's D-R-D-E-R-Y. To see and share our amazing animations and find out more information about us, the show, as well as links to our social media, go to noisefiltershow.com. We are grateful to our sponsors, including Access Health Louisiana and the End the Epidemic Initiative, who are working to bring equitable health outcomes to everyone they serve. Hope, any last words? Stay well out there, folks, and continue taking steps to keep yourself and your loved ones healthy. That includes exercise, a good diet, getting adequate sleep, and seeing your healthcare providers regularly. And protect yourself and others by getting the COVID-19 vaccine and booster, wearing a mask, and social distancing wherever possible. Remember, health is a human right. Right.